Yeah, what a gospel. What good news. We've been celebrating it this morning. We've been celebrating it through song. We've been celebrating it through the spoken word. I mean, what a gospel. I mean, it's okay to say amen, Westside. It's what a true, amazing bit of good news that we have. This good news of Jesus, the Messiah, thank you, Mike, for that. I totally agree when you say, you know, people think Christ was his last name, but it's, it's a title, Messiah, the anointed one, the one that we were all waiting for, the one that all of Scripture speaks to and says, look out for this one because this is the one that everything culminates here. That one, the good news of that one, that one has gone through this whole world. It has crossed over, oh, sorry, thanks, Ted. He's so slick. Is that, is that better? Okay. Anyway, it has crossed over every kind of barrier imaginable. So the, remember that this started out in Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago with a small group of people, a very small group of people, and it has made its way all the way here to us here in Oregon. I want you to think about how amazing that is, that it has crossed over 2,000 years. It's crossed over, you know, geography, obviously, but it's crossed through language barriers. It's crossed cultural barriers. It's been for every generation. It's not just a white people thing. It's not just a brown people thing. It's not just a black people thing or a whatever people thing. This good news is for everyone, and it has transformed the world. So the question is, how in the world did something that was so small, it's a group that was so small, transform into all of us? Why did this message that started with only a handful of people take over the world? I love how J.D. Greer says it. He says, never has a larger assignment been given to a less qualified group of people. You think about the disciples. These were not the smartest. They weren't the best. They weren't the brightest. These were just a bunch of ordinary people like me, like you. You know, fishermen and, and you know, people who did some of this and some of that. It's kind of like Intel employees, tree farmers, you know, just normal people. And with that small group of nobodies, Jesus turned the world upside down. What an amazing thing has happened so I guess the question that I have this morning and, and, and the, the tension I want us to think about here is what happened? What happened? Why is it now that we see in the West predominantly that churches are declining, especially with younger generations? What happened? This gospel that has so overtaken things, just gone all over, what what happened? Did, did the sinful condition of people change that much more? W what happened? Because somewhere along the way, there's a disconnect. Well, apparently the picture of the Mars orbiter is up. Uh, I want to look this morning at a, um, uh, at, at a couple things here. Can we, can we just blank that out for just a minute? Sorry, Andrea. Um, I remember when I was in high school, I was pretty good at math, had done it all my life. I know it's hard to believe that I was actually good at an academic thing, but I was actually okay at math until I got to pre-calculus in my junior year. At, in pre-calculus, I was like, I was totally lost. 
this all of a sudden didn't make sense. Algebra 2, the year before, I was cruising in it. It's like I didn't even have to try and I was like doing okay. And I'm not saying this to brag. I, this, this is like, it's just, I don't know why, it just clicked. But then when I got to pre-calculus, it was like I had no clue. It's like all of a sudden I was drowning in, and I didn't know how to swim. It was so weird. I don't know, did anybody, I know this is a lot of Intel employees, so you're probably like, yeah, pre-calculus, I did that like, you know, when I was a freshman in high school or whatever. But, but for me, it was super complicated. And the reason is it didn't relate to life. I didn't understand when in the world am I ever going to use this, right? And I don't know why it took me until then to notice that, but it just, it just never connected at all. So I, I got my first C in math, and I, uh, at the end of that semester, I was like, all right, I'm going to try something else. And my parents said, well, you need to take another math course. So I looked to see what was available, and I saw this one called Applied Math. And I thought, that sounds interesting. And it was taught by the former basketball coach of Hillsborough High School, John Veneman. I don't know, a little John Veneman shout out, yeah? So anyway, Mr. Veneman taught it. And when I went to that class, it, it, was, it was so cool. All of a sudden, this math that had been so out there and had nothing to do with what I was ever, I, I mean, I don't imagine myself drawing parabolas as a 40-year-old man, right? I don't know, anybody? So... What was so cool about that is he was show. we were going through math, we were talking about like depreciation charts, we were talking about interest rates, we were talking about how these kinds of things like, like uh, if you buy a car and you put X amount down and you're going to finance the rest of this, how much do you end up paying in interest? And all these kids who were in there were, you know, a bunch of juniors and seniors in there and it was like, yeah, I, I can't afford the $15,000 card, but I can afford the $175 monthly payment you know, for 90 years or whatever that was going to be. And we, all of a sudden, we started to see, like, oh, man, math applies to the real world. Oh, that makes sense. Okay, now, now because I've learned this math, but it's been applied to my real life, all of a sudden things are starting to click, and I'm really interested. I spent about a decade in youth ministry here at Westside, training up some of your kids uh, and and some, some kids who are here today. And um, I poured my heart into it. Teaching, uh, spent uh, a lot of hours, a lot of money at Starbucks, uh, you know, buying coffee drinks for, for whatever reason, when you take a high schooler out, they find the most expensive thing on the menu when you don't have any money. But anyway, that's, uh, I, that's water under the bridge. I've forgiven it and all that. Uh, <laughs> I poured my heart into it. And it broke my heart to see so many kids graduate from high school from here, go off to maybe some other church, kind of plug in a little bit. And then before long, about half or so, were no longer walking with the Lord. And they just felt like, about, they felt about Jesus the way I felt about pre-calculus. It's just not that relevant. What is missing? Where, what happened? I mean, the gospel made its way to me. I'm, I'm kind of a numbskull. It made its way to me, and I'm having a hard time passing it on to the next generation. I want us to look at the mission of Jesus this morning. This is the series Mission Possible, and we're going to clarify what the mission is that Jesus gave us this morning. Before we do, I want us to notice that 
details are important. There's the Mars Climate Orbiter. In 1998, uh, the Mars Climate Orbiter was launched from Earth, and it flew for nine months to get to the red planet Mars. As it got closer, it was supposed to orbit, you know, and, and check out the climate. And as it got closer, it goes behind, it went behind the planet, and that was all planned and everything. And they lost communications, which was expected. But what happened, do you guys remember what happened? I see some people nodding their heads. What happened was that when it went into autopilot, there was the communication that had been sent and the onboard system. One was done in metric and one was done in uh, uh, the other one. I, yeah, the other one, the feet. You know, that, that one. And so what happened is miscalculation and hundreds of millions of dollars burns up in, Mer in Mars' atmosphere. Something happened, and it was just one small detail. I mean, imagine that, that the Mars climate orbiter had made its way all the way from Earth to basically Mars. I mean, a nine-month journey, and then right at the end, something didn't connect. And it was just as simple as a word. And what I want to look at this morning in the Great Commission the mission given to us by Jesus is it might be as simple as a word that we have missed in the commission. So let's look at this this morning. This is Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Oh, sorry, I'll give you a chance to turn to it. Um, Matthew chapter 28 verses 18 through 20. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I want us to look down at, at this. Did you, did you see the one word that it could possibly be? Did you see the word? Let's see, okay? Uh, let's go into it. So we're going to look at the Great Commission here. This starts off with the quali qualification and the charge and then the action items. So first we start with the qualification. And Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth, that would include Mars, I think. All authority in, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Jesus is saying, I have authority. This is Jesus, the risen, reigning one that we sang about a couple songs back. Day after day, that one has all authority in heaven and on earth. And I love the way that Abraham Kuyper said it. He says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. He owns everything. He's the ruler over everything. There is no higher authority. There is no higher power than Jesus. He is above all. And so when he gives this command, he gives this mission to the church, we really ought to listen. We really ought to listen. Have you ever heard a message that you thought, boy, this is a great message, but it's really specific to that church? Like they're dealing with something that's really kind of specific to them. You know, when you read the, the New Testament letters, sometimes there's things that Paul will talk about to, to one of the churches, and he'll be like, we're like, well, you know, that's really specific. Like, you know, I urge Euodia and Syntyche to get along. Does that mean like in our church, if you're named Euodia and you're named Syntyche, like, sorry guys, 
that, that one's for you. It, it, obviously, there's specific contexts and sp specific jurisdictions, you could say. I don't expect to get pulled over here in Hillsborough. Well, I don't hope to get pulled over anywhere, but I don't expect to get pulled over here by a Chicago police officer. I, I, you know, there are certain jurisdictions, but Jesus is saying it's all mine. And so when he sends us out into the world, he's saying, this is all under my rule. And as Mike talked about this morning, we are ambassadors of a king. We're ambassadors. We represent a king. We represent the one who has all authority. And so when we go before people who might seem to have more authority than we do, they don't have more authority than Jesus does. And so we make our appeal to them as ambassadors of a higher power. And next, we look at the charge. The charge in this, in this whole, you know, in all these verses, the Great Commission, there is one verb here that is in the imperative. The imperative means it's a command. And there's only one verb here that is in the imperative, and that is make disciples. So the command is really make disciples. That's the one command that Jesus gave. So I want us to think about that now. Remember the context of who Jesus is talking to. Jesus has died, he's been raised, and now here he is, he's talking to who? Who is he talking, it's okay for interaction here at this point. Who is he talking to? Yeah, he's talking to his disciples, right? How long had he been with the disciples? Masimenos. About three years? Yeah, it's, it's okay, this is a safe place. Um, yeah, he'd been, he'd been with the disciples for about three years. So he's basically, and, and I mean, they were even called the disciples. So think about this, that, that Jesus is saying to them basically, you know that thing I've been doing with you for about three years or so? Yeah, do that for other people, right? You get the gist. It's, it's like, you know, if, if um, I don't know, there's not probably a really great example of that somewhere. I just can't access it right now. But that idea, I've been doing this with you for three years. We're using the same terms. You're my disciple. I'm asking you to go make disciples. We look at the, the example of Jesus. What did Jesus do then? We don't necessarily look to just like, well, what would I like to do? No, no, no. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. So let's really, really listen to him. Let's listen to the, to the details of what he says. So we need to really start to clearly define what is a disciple then. You know, I was thinking about like this. If, if I told Amy, all right, honey, I'm going to go hunting. She might ask, what are you going to hunt? And if I said, stuff, I don't know. We'll see what I see. I, I, I have been hunting before, and as several here can attest, I'm not a real successful hunter. Uh, but, um, but, you know, I might say, well, I'm going to go out and I'll, I'll look for maybe some bear. Maybe I'll look for some elk or deer. Maybe I'll look for a badger. Maybe I'll look for a lion. I don't know. Maybe I'll see a squirrel. Maybe I'll see a beaver. Maybe I will see a mushroom. Maybe I will go hunt rainbows. Whatever, I'm just going to go hunt stuff. No, when you go hunting, you define what you're going to hunt, right? There's a season for it. There's a time. You want to know what you're doing. But then as, as others here can attest as well, when, say I'm hunting deer. If I'm hunting deer, I go, all right, I don't just go up to a herd of deer and just shoot at the herd, right? 
I mean, we know this instinctively. I think we do, right? Travis, can you back me up on this? You don't shoot at a hurt. Oh, thank you. Starting to wonder if I'm wrong here. Not only do you not shoot for the herd, you shoot for one specific deer, and you're not just shooting at the deer trying to hit it somewhere. You're not trying to hope it hit it in the foot. Uh, although some of us have done this before. <laughs> There's a very specific spot on the deer. And so when you are practicing, you are shooting for that very specific spot because that's the perfect spot to hit it. And so the more clearly that you can be defining what you are shooting at, the more likely you are to hit it. So when we use the, the word disciple here at Westside, we're going to say what Jesus said it was. And Jesus said this in Matthew 4.19. He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Three parts to what Jesus is calling Simon Peter and James and John to do. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So being a disciple is, is someone who is following Jesus someone who is being changed by Jesus, and someone who joins Jesus on his mission. That's what it looks like to be a disciple. That was the disciples' experience. That's what Jesus had called them into. So when Jesus says, now you go do this too, they probably had a really clear understanding of what he meant by that. So we go back to the Great Commission here. So what does this look like? So we have the, the, um, the command is given clearly, the, the authority, we've got the command, and now what are the action items? What is this going to look like? So the first one is go. We go to all the nations. This means that we are the ones who take the initiative. We are the ones who move missionally outward. If we're going to be a disciple of Jesus, and if we're going to obey what he has given us to do, we are going to move outward. That's uncomfortable for some of us. Some of us really like it right here. Just the way things are. And if we just didn't have to move, we'd, we'd really enjoy this whole Great Commission idea more. But the reality is, is that if we are going to be obedient to the call of Jesus, we will move outward. We move outward on mission. And when we think about that, that we are moving outward as ambassadors for Christ, what an amazing privilege. What an amazing privilege that the, the one all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And he calls you. He calls you to go and make disciples. He wants to use you. That's incredible. I mean, I don't, I don't know how you view yourself. But when I think of the, the creator of everything wanting to involve me in anything, it seems like... Are you kidding me? Because in reality, I know me. I know what a screw-up I am. In fact, I know more of my own sins than any of you guys. I've probably, hopefully. Uh, but like, I know my weaknesses. I know my temptations. 
I know the times when I'm like feeling really angry, but I don't express it very much. But I know that inside of me, there's something that's wrong. It's broken. Why should I be so angry over this silly little thing? But it's there. It's there. And I'm still struggling with it. And I'm asking God, please change me, transform me. But God sees it perfectly. He sees the depths of my heart. And he loves me the same. And he says, I want to use you. I want to use you. That's what he's been doing for 2,000 years, is been using normal people like you, like me, to turn the world upside down with the good news of the gospel. Next up in our actions is baptizing. Baptizing was the initiating rite for those who believe in Jesus. Baptizing, it's literally, it's baptized into. So you've got this idea of this union. So you've got like baptism, and, and for those who, who aren't familiar with what that means, it's, it's usually it means to immerse someone under the water and pull them out of the water. And it usually had to do some kind of identification type of thing. Um, in Jesus' time, when, and when Jesus told the, the disciples to go do it, it, there seemed to be a few significant meanings for it. And, and one of them is simply identification with Jesus. It's like I'm washing off my old self, and now I identify with Jesus. It's saying I'm with Jesus. Another way that Paul would describe it later on in Romans chapter 6 is that we are, uh, we are buried by baptism into Christ's death. And we are raised to walk in newness of life. Right? Yeah, are you familiar with this? It's an initiating rite of the Christian life. So what this assumes, it assumes the gospel has been proclaimed and believed. It assumes that the gospel has been proclaimed and believed because that's who gets baptized is people who are believers in Jesus. People who have identified with Jesus by faith. It assumes a connection of the message now, there's some of you probably here this morning who have heard the good news of the gospel. You've believed in the good news of the gospel. But maybe you haven't taken that public statement of saying, I'm with Jesus. I'm with Jesus. I want to encourage you this morning that if that's you, please talk to one of us elders. Jesus said to be baptized. He told the disciples to go baptize people who were believers in Jesus. So, um, anyway, that's kind of a little side message. The last part of this in the actions, this is where I believe that we have missed it. He says, teaching them to obey. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. That missing word changes everything. If we just take out to obey, teaching them all that I've commanded you. That's a really different sense. Any teachers in here? Any, anybody in here? It's a lot easier thing to just lecture like this right now. is actually quite simple. Uh, it's really quite nice. I don't have, you know, I hope that you all listen. I hope that you are all changed by it. But you know what? Right now, I've got very little say in your reception and understanding uh, and, and growth in what I'm telling you right now. This is pretty easy. Honestly, it's a much different thing if it's teaching to obey because it's a lot harder thing for me to teach 
all you guys to obey. In fact, a lot of you guys have taught me to obey. So we're, you know, I don't want to put the shoe on the wrong foot there. But it's a lot messier than just simply teaching. Because it takes intention. It takes relationship. It takes time. And I believe that this is where we in the West have largely gotten off track with what Jesus called us to do. We've become really great at teaching with very little teaching to obey because it's just messier. It's just harder. It takes more time. Have you ever taught a child how to tie their shoes? Ra yes, thank you, Diane. Raise your hand if you've taught a child how to raise shoes, in part even, right? So you don't give a lecture and say, hey, this is how you tie shoes. Uh, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. See me in five years, right? No, you, you walk through it with them, right? You show them how to do it. They do it, kind of. And then they get the one part right, and you're like, yes, you got that one part right. Now just do that three more times with loops and good luck holding on to it and all that kind of stuff. And it's just, it's just a mess. And it takes a long time. And, and honestly, so this, this is, I think this is so instructive, but this is my experience in teaching some of my kids to tie their shoes. I mean, all my kids know how to tie their shoes. I just want to, you know. But the thing is, is you watch your kids walk around with really jacked up shoes for like several months before they really figure it out. And it's like, yeah, you tied that and that was cute, but it's really loose and it's just about to fall out. And if you're in a stiff wind, it's just going to come out and everything. So that's the difference between teaching and teaching to obey. Teaching to obey is a lot more like teaching someone how to tie their shoes who has no idea how do I tie my shoes. But that's what Jesus has commissioned us with. The disappearance of a generation from this church shows that we've lost something in the transmission. Many have expressed, I'm reading this part because I want to be careful how I state this. Many have expressed that the message handed down to them just didn't work in their experience. Something is missing and I believe they're right. We've been passing down the faith in a way that doesn't connect and we need to help bring the gospel to life in this generation or our gospel light will go out. We need to get back to the way of the early church. At Westside, we love talking about New Testament principles. The most New Testament thing that we could do here at Westside is to go, get back to life-on-life -life discipleship like Jesus did. The Sunday morning-only model of trying to fit everything into a, an event does not adequately equip our young people to have a vibrant and robust faith. The problem is generations grew up in the church who began to feel ever increasingly that the church had left them with a faith that didn't relate to real life. It wasn't teaching to obey, it was just teaching, because that's a lot easier. It's so much cleaner to just do teaching. But teaching to obey is a slow grind. It's three steps forward, it's two steps back. And you can't do that in a Sunday only or in a Sunday mostly model, where people come to watch a Sunday service once a week. 
that kind of thing, teaching to obey, has to be done in relationship over a longer period of time. And it is time that we return to discipleship like Jesus did. That means messy relationships. It means vulnerability. It means becoming gospel fluent with one another as a community. Some of the things that, um, that the elders are trying to do right now have been, we, we've been told, that sounds nice, but I think that's a fad. The fad is not discipleship. The fad, hear this, the fad was the consumer-driven church that failed my generation and every generation since that can only exist in a culture that is predominantly Christian. That was the fad. And that fad is gone. And it's time for it to leave. That model of discipleship, of making disciples through mass production, bigger messages, and Sunday-only things, event-driven Sundays, that cannot carry the weight of the generations that are coming. The genera- my generation and every generation after me. This isn't just for one youth pastor to do. It's not for a few elders to do. This is something that we are all called and invited to do. You and I are called to make disciples today in the same way that Jesus did. And I want to challenge you, each of you, every one of us, to find what can I do to be a part of Passing the gospel baton on to the next generation. Because friends, that, that's, that is the future of the church. That generation is going to be much better missionary to that generation than you or I could ever be. I, I listen to the music from even 10 years ago and I'm like, whoa, I don't get this. I mean, much less the music today. And I'm, I'm 44, I'm getting old. It's true, there's, there's a disconnect now, and it's hard for me. There's cultural differences. The world has shifted. I mean, surely you've seen this, right? The culture has shifted so radically, we didn't have to go anywhere to end up being cross-cultural missionaries. You stay right in Oregon and give it another five years, and things are going to be radically different in this culture than they are right now. So who is best going to reach that generation Maybe it'll be me, maybe it'll be you, but it seems that the best chance of reaching that generation is through that generation. So how do we invest in them best? How can we do that? So for the sake of the gospel, the, the gospel light does not go out with us. Will you invest in this generation's missionaries? We talk about our budget for foreign missionaries, which is awesome. That's great, but we've got a whole mission field right here, right now, and you don't have to fly anywhere to be a missionary, but you got to understand, it's cross-cultural right here, right now. So will you invest in that generation's missionaries? There's this book that I think, I I, I wish everybody at Westside would read. Um, This is what really began to put help me put my finger on some things 
It's uh, called You Lost Me. It's by David Kinnaman. He's the president of the Barna Group. He says this, most young Protestants do not recall having a meaningful relationship with an adult through their church. And more than four out of five had an adult, uh, I'm sorry, and more than four out of five never had an adult mentor. This is true of enough young Christians that we must ask ourselves whether our churches are providing the rich environments that a relationally oriented generation needs to develop deep faith. I believe we need a new mind to measure the vibrancy and health of the intergenerational relationships in our faith communities. This leaning young, I want to clarify this, leaning young does not mean that there's no place for older Christians here. Leaning young means we absolutely need the older generation to disciple my generation, to disciple the coming generations. We absolutely need you. Thank God Jesus ends this with a promise. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We cannot do this alone. If Jesus did not promise to be with us, this mission would be impossible. But praise God, he has promised to be with us through this. As, as we read this morning in, in John 15, Jesus said, remain in me and you're going to bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. I think that the fruit that Jesus is talking about there, the fruit that would come from them and the fruit that would remain is not so much their character or the, the kinds of things that they were going to do. I think that the fruit that Jesus is talking about there is you and me. The fruit is those who would believe in Jesus through their word. That's me and you. And he wants our fruit to remain. He wants to see us be productive. He wants to see people come to saving faith because of our, because of our witness. He wants to see people grow in the faith because of our witness. So I want to give us some practical ways that we can do this for the sake of the gospel. Number one is get outside with your neighbors. If we're going to, to reach this world, if we're going to be the ambassadors that we're called to be, you know, ambassadors don't go, do a real great job if they're just locked in their own little castle all the time, never see anybody else. And, you know, in this time and age where you can literally, you could never leave your house. Amy and I were just talking about this yesterday. You could never leave your house. You can order everything you need from Amazon. You can get grocery delivery. You'd never really need to use your car. Gas is so expensive anyway. So, like, you could, you can work from home. I mean, some people are watching this at home right now in judgment-free zone, but it's like you could never leave. You could have this whole life and just, like, never leave your house. And the sad part about that is every neighbor around you would never come to saving faith because of your witness. And you would lose an opportunity. It's like an investor who gives people all this stuff to, to in, go and invest. It, he's an owner and he goes and he says like, man, go invest this in the market and like, let's see it make some money. And those people, they just take it and they just go, they, I, I don't know what to do. I, I could do this, but that seems risky. I could do that, but it seems risky. I don't know what to do. I'm going to. I'm going to bury it. Because you know what? The dirt's not going to take this money. And when the master comes back, I mean, I think you all know the story. The master comes back. It's like, what in the world did you do? Of course it involves a risk. All investments invest, 
have some kind of risk to it. The biggest risk is what you lose out when you bury what the master gave you. That's the biggest risk. Am I getting too heavy? Sorry, I'm passionate about this. Get outside with your neighbors. Do things with people, but do it like a missionary. Understand, you are a cross-cultural ambassador for the King Jesus. You have an opportunity to represent Jesus to this person who may be far off from God. You can try a new hobby with other people. I started doing jujitsu. And it's a great way to connect with people. If you'd like to sign up for jujitsu, talk to me afterwards. Um, but it's, it's, you know, I didn't do jujitsu because I felt like, well, I'll probably be good at this. I had no idea what on earth I was doing. But you know what I saw? I saw from some friendships that I had at another gym, a boxing gym, I thought there's an opportunity for connection here. Here's an opportunity. Here's people who need to hear the gospel. I would encourage you, find ways, try something with people for the sake of the gospel. But understand that your friends contemplate the destiny of the people around you. If they go on without ever being united to Jesus by faith, they are going to eternal hell. And you stood right next to them with the truth, with the answer, and you said nothing. How in the world can we worship like this and then live like that? And finally, we pray the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And for the sake of the gospel in this generation, will you invite the single people at this church to your house for the sake of our gospel witness? Will you get some time with that really busy young family, that young family that seems like they've always got a thousand things going on, and praise God, we've got numerous very busy families here. But will you take the time to just say, hey, can we get together next week, four weeks from now, eight weeks from now, nine years from now, just schedule something and spend time together. Engage with the high schoolers and the middle schoolers at this church. We have a generation coming up that it is unlikely that they would develop any kind of friendship or relationship with you if it weren't for the gospel. But what has happened here increasingly is our generations, like at a lot of places, our generations have become somewhat siloed. This generation just hangs out with each other. This generation just hangs out with each other. This generation just hangs out with each other. I mean, except for youth leaders and except for, you know, Sunday school teachers and that kind of thing. You know, you don't have to be a youth leader or a Sunday school person to check in with a 14-year-old kid. You don't have to be a high school youth leader to go watch a basketball game. Anybody can do that. It's just a matter of do you want to see the, them be missionaries in their generation? I would say check in with Brittany or with Jay Wood. If, can you help in the nursery or in Sunday school? And yes, it's awkward and it can be intimidating, but you will do amazing things for love. I asked Dick Papworth if I could marry his daughter. That was hard for me. And I love Dick and I know him very well now, but at the time, I didn't know what he was going to say. 
I kind of thought, I mean, and I know this is silly because he's, he's not this kind of person. I just want to be really clear. But I kind of thought that I'm going to sit and I'm going to say, hey, I'd like to marry Amy. I kind of imagined him like reaching across the table and grabbing me and just like, I don't know, something just bad. I was just so scared. And I was shaking. I was so nervous. But you know what? I love Amy. And yes, that was scary. And thankfully, he's so gracious. He said yes, by the way. Um, <laughs> he was so gracious and so kind. The fear was all in my mind. But the truth is, you will do some pretty crazy things for love. And I guess what I'm asking you is, particularly older generation, what is the faith of the next generation worth? What is the faith of the next generation worth? What if Westside was a people who were seeing people coming to saving faith in Jesus and being baptized regularly? What if this was a regular part of what we did? What if that baptismal that I think is in the storage room back there, what if that thing hardly ever got dry? Because we had to use it so much because we went out on mission with Jesus as he commanded us. Wouldn't that be awesome? Would that be cool? It's okay to say yes. I mean, it's Hopefully you don't say no, but like, hey, listen, wouldn't that be awesome? I'm dreaming of a church that is like that. I'm dreaming of a church that is filled with missionaries who are sent out being ambassadors for Christ, taking seriously the mission that he gave to me and you and saying, okay, that sounds kind of crazy, but I'm going to trust you for that, Lord. What if Westside was full of people like that? Is that a church you'd want to go to? It's a church I'd love to go to. What if Westside became a church that was filled with young people and children who are growing in their love for the Lord, their love for others, and they were reaching their generation with the gospel? What would that be worth to you? Would you give up a lot for that? To see your kids, to see your grandkids, love and follow Jesus and be missionaries in this time and this place, I would give a lot for that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this clarity of mission. We don't have to conjure something up. We don't have to, like, figure it out on our own. You gave us clear language. You gave us a clear mission. You give us clear definitions of what it means to be a disciple, Lord, now just give us faith to step out and do it. Lord, we want to be a people that is going out on mission. We want to be a people. We want it for like everybody else, but it, it seems like it's so hard for us to do it ourselves because it seems risky. It seems scary. But Lord, I pray that our love for you would overcome that. That our love for others would overcome that. And that we would join you in mission in making disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that you've commanded us. And we thank you that you are with us always to the end of the age. Amen.